The Fantasy Animation Podcast takes its listeners on a journey through the colliding and sometimes competing worlds of fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Each episode, we select an example of fantasy animation and consider the ways in which it functions to inspire and use our imaginations within the sphere of all things that are sculpted, composed, crafted and drawn. To help support the show, please subscribe via your podcast feed and give us a like and a quick review. It takes no more than a minute, but it really helps us to grow our audience. You can also find our archive of podcasts and our weekly blog at fantasy-animation.org. You'll find the latest reviews there, features, editorials, all written by academics, writers, historians and professional animators working within these overlapping media, mediums and genres. Failing all that, tell your friends, tell a friend about the show and the good work we do here. There's no substitution for good old-fashioned word of mouth, so thanks for downloading and I really hope you enjoy the show. Hi listeners, welcome to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holiday, And me, Alex Sargent. Somewhere between disgust and anger today. Uh, or maybe joy and sadness. Okay, so we're doing Inside Out. Well, we're doing Pixar, we're doing Inside Out. A film that I have a kind of, in the spirit of a filming about emotions, I have a love-hate relationship with. Uh, it's uh, an instance where Pixar released two computer animated films the same year. It's only happened a couple of times. I think Coco and Cars 3 was the last time, but 2015... Um, produces Good Dinosaur and then this film, Inside Out, I think generally considered to be the, I guess, quote-unquote, better of the two films, though perhaps we can we can talk about that. Um, and certainly really interesting, I think it's it's certainly more kind of conceptual, cerebral than than um, the, the Good Dinosaur and, and touches on, on what would it be like if feelings had feelings. So I've certainly used it in my teaching to talk about animated representation, um, characterization, personality, that sort of stuff. Um, and I guess for you, there's plenty of stuff on dreams and, and fantasy and in, an embodiment, right? Yeah, 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 I'm really. I like this movie a lot. I'm sure there are th- problems with it we can dissect yeah. and, and go over. And I'm not. It's not a perfect movie, but it, it got me straight away when I first saw it. It's one of my favorite Pixar movies. Really? Um, um, so I'm really. Uh, yeah, and it fits within a you know a genre we've already talked about on the podcast before of like that kind of fantasy body comedy of of you know we've done as Osmosis Jones just a couple of episodes ago. Yeah. And things like you know Inner Space and the British institution, the Numbskulls. So I'm 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 well on board and happy to talk about it. Great. Uh, luckily, well, it won't just be us, Chris. No, this is a great opportunity, actually, to to get someone on the podcast who um, whose work has certainly been a, both, I think, in terms of my, his research, uh, a touchstone for my own uh, interest in, in computer animated films, and also just looking at his selected publications. I was telling him before we before we started that um, I teach all of them, so not just myself, but my students are very. Um, uh, familiar with his work on caricature and, and politics. So this is uh, Eric Herhuth, who is a assistant professor in communication at Tulane University. Um, Eric's work kind of traverses a number of issues related to, to animation, I think aesthetics, uh, politics. He's written on the politics of animation, which I use uh, when I teach animation and politics. He's written on caricature and, and this notion of kind of overloading, which I think is, is kind of fascinating in a world where we always ask our students to unpack. Um, I think overloading is a really interesting way of thinking about um, caricature 
literature, and then perhaps, I guess, most, most famously, his book from 2017, Pixar and the Aesthetic Imagination, which sits on my shelf, and I know it sits on a number of other um, animation studies um, scholar shelves as well. So um, Pixar and the Aesthetic Imagination, Animation, Storytelling, and Digital Culture. So, um, Eric, thank you so much for coming on the, the podcast. Thank you for having me, Chris. Alex, this is a real privilege. Well, no, it's, it's a privilege for us, and, yeah. and it's a privilege to talk to you about the, the, the Inside Out as well. So, I guess just let's let's set up what, what, where the conversation might go. Where Inside Out, um, you know, it's it's a it's an important movie in Pixar. Well, for some, it's an important movie in Pixar's canon. It's also sort yeah. of you know slightly ab- you know it's it's kind of c- towards the tail end of this golden age of Pixar. We seem to be coming through. Ooh, we can talk about that. Oh God! All right, well, I said something controversial. I didn't even mean to. Um, but yeah, um, what, 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 how does Inside Out fit within your kind of broader interests in Pixar? Um, and, and what's your sort of thoughts on the movie to kick us off? Yeah, it's a good question because I, I was thinking about this. Um, you know, I watched it a little while ago and. Um, you know, the way that I read Pixar films, I read them quite often as like political allegories, right? Yeah. I try to find, you know, what values or ideologies, you know, um, do the films represent uh, narratively or yeah. in the characters. And Inside Out was almost too explicit, but also a little <laughs> confusing uh, yeah. in this way, right? Um, the emotion characters, you know, there's explicit metaphors. Um, the mind, uh, Riley's mind, the character Riley, her mind is this vast space. It's kind of container. So, like, everything seems to be metaphorical. So I'm like, oh, this should be easy. It's a political allegory. Like, what are what are the values and ideologies behind it? Yeah. And then I start to, like, dig into that a little bit. And, you know, there's some parts that are clear. Other parts, I, I'm not so sure. So, yeah. you know, that's something I thought we might... You know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I know. Yeah, because obviously your book kind of takes um, a kind of case to the approach looking at specific um, Pixar films, and I guess the way that these things work is that, and the nature of publication is that the film kind of comes. If the book comes out twenty seventeen, this film's kind of on the edge of, of when you're wrapping things up. Um, but it'd be good to get a sense of a kind of couple of examples of. of uh, for readers or oh, for listeners who are uh, not familiar with your um, work on Pixar and the aesthetic imagination, um, give us an example of your kind of political readings. So I know you've written on Ratatouille, you've written on Wally. Um, so yeah, kind of a flavour, I guess, of of a, a, a way uh, an Eric Herhuth approach to computer animated films. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is nice. I uh, I think to put it succinctly, what I often find in animated films and. Um, I'll defer to Chris on what a uh, computer animated film is. But what, uh, what I often find is that it amplifies a certain uh, kind of dialectic that we find a lot in art more generally, mm. which is that you'll you know, kind of enter into a created space, an artificial world, if you will, where it seems that the rules of that world might be at play, you know, kind of up in the air. You're introduced to them. It's not sure what they're going to be. Uh, but in that world, you find it actually to be fairly traditional conventional, highly normative, actually, even though it doesn't have to be. Mm. So my first article, which, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, represents this, I think, quite well, was about the film WALL-E. So it's about robots. Yeah. It's about the future. Uh, the, you know, it's a sort of uh, post-apocalyptic kind of setting. Uh, the Earth is gone. Um, and yet, what do the robot characters sort of learn to do uh, in, in this film? You know, they sort of stray from their programming. They, you know, develop a kind of desire for freedom and to be free. Um, the robot Wally learns to, you know, heterosexual desire to want to couple with another robot. So while you're in this space where things could be radically different, you know, they 
they're not that different. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so I think that's something that um, we find in a lot of animated films. Uh, Pixar films seem to do that in interesting ways. And, you know, to be clear, when I do these sort of dialectical readings, I don't uh, want to be so cynical that I say, well, there's nothing really optimistic or, um, you know, there's no sincere expression of uh, the possible. Yeah. I actually think there is. I think there is an expression of, like, real possibility and radical change and rethinking things conceptually, um, different forms of embodiment and this sort of thing. But, you know, at the same time, uh, Pixar films do what I think a lot of Hollywood productions that are meant to be, you know, that are designed for mass audiences, they're kind of inherently conservative, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, there's only so much they do in that regard. So you've hit on what I like to call on the podcast the Wizard of Oz problem, um, and that's that's the reference done for the week, so I don't have to think of a way to get that into the conversation <laughs> again. But, but the Wizard of Oz problem being that, you know, in a world where a film can be about a completely alternative world, why is a film like The Wizard of Oz about home, right? Uh, <laughs> and and the, the dialectic that I think when I read your book and I'm seeing the way you are, you know, it's a really useful methodology because it, what it does is it, it highlights the contradictions without trying to necessarily completely resolve them into a neat bow. And I think, you know, The Wizard of Oz and, and fantasy and, and imaginative storytelling often has this space for a, quite a dialectic because... Because The Wizard of Oz is a film about home. It's an incredibly conservative movie. But it's also a movie in which the, if you just take it on the level of sensation and aesthetics and, 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 and the sensorium of the movie, that's all in, in quite a radical space. It's all in the kind of other, the alternative, the, 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 the approaching the new, the approaching the, the different, the subversive, the, the queer in some cases, you know, um, depending on how you read all the spaces of Oz. Um, so yeah, fine. The film ends with the line "There's no place like home," but the, but 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 one's relationship to that movie, um, and people's relationship to the movie can be very subversive and can be used in a very progressive manner. So, is is that is is that a tension when we talk about these kind of works of popular mass art, in that they have to be on one level incredibly hegemonic and within the kind of structures of power otherwise they don't get released and they don't get made and they're funded, not, released, they get funded yeah, yeah. And, and, and enjoyed by lo so many people from so many different political and, and persuasions but also they have to be highly imaginative and rich and have that sensorial impact and that in itself can kind of do things that maybe the narrative isn't doing or is, is contrary to some of the things the narrative are saying because aesthetics kind of are a bit more unwieldy than that. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right. And, and what it reminds me of, actually, is when I was doing research uh, for the Pixar book, I kept, you know, I was watching lots of interviews with John Lasseter, right? And, you know, and reading uh, sort of interviews. And one of the things that I found him kind of saying over and over again was that, so, you know, in 1995 when uh, Toy Story comes out and then when they were doing the shorts before that, computer animation was very new. And so Lasseter was always thinking about, you know, how do we kind of, you know, do something that's new but also familiar, <laughs> right? And so, like, you know, introducing people to computer animation but through stories, narratives, characters, um, you know, yeah. worlds that are somewhat familiar. And so I think that logic of new and familiar actually um, kind of fits really well with that, di you know, the, the mm -hmm. Wizard of Oz problem you were just sort of <laughs> talking to and how, do you, how does a company produce a product? Um, that's mm. going to have, you know, mass appeal and be, you know, accepted in many uh, contexts, but also be very creative and imaginative. Mm. Um, and mm. so, you know, I see that there being a kind of fit there and that sort of balance. Yeah, no, I agree. So bringing the conversation to inside out, I guess, what's what's the tension or what's the dialectic that we could play with in, in that movie? If we're talking about Pixar as this site for you know, innovation, but also of, of conservatism and, and this kind of, you know, political 
Um, uh, yeah, political conservatism with a small C, uh, or a big C, depending on what you're reading of the film is. Um, uh, and um, yeah, stylistic innovation. How's that playing out in Inside Out? Yeah, I mean, it might be a little less conservative in some senses. This is what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, mainly because, you know, if the kind of lesson of the film is to, you know, learn to accept sadness or to learn to appreciate sadness for what it brings to interpersonal relationships, you know, forming bonds with others, developing sympathy, um, learning to kind of accept your emotions and let them unfold over time instead of like repressing them. If, if you know, if that's the lesson on one hand, that's, you know, kind of familiar. Um, uh, and, uh, but on the other, um, I'm thinking it, it's also kind of critical if we're thinking about its cultural context, you know, it's a U.S. Hollywood production being one in which, and this is what the film kind of suggests explicitly, there's an obsession with sort of um, achieving happiness, maintaining one's sense of joy, right, <laughs> and kind of always being happy, um, right, and even this reminds me of the world of the mind that's inside the character Riley, like that world is supposed to be fun. It kind of, you know, the islands of personality have like an amusement park quality to them. Uh, and so to me, there's, you know, this kind of emphasis on fun, joy. And then, the, of course, the arc of the film is that, you know, that's some, you know, misguided. Um, and it's not sort of leading to um, proper like emotional development. Now, I think, you know, we can kind of see, you know, is this is this, you know, proper emotional development that we're sort of, you know, witnessing what sort of standards um, is that sort of adhering to? Mm. But I think that's the, the general kind of way that it's often read, right? Um, is that sort of the, the lesson of it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I guess it's, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm in two minds. I mean, I think, I think it's very incredibly emotionally effective, and I think, I think the film's embrace of sadness is, is hard to be too cynical about because I think it's an important thing, but it does, I guess I'm wondering what, what, what that is, because it, on one hand, it seems almost like a sort of, you know, political statement about kind of, I don't know, the, the um, neoliberalism or, or even the American project, right? The pursuit of happiness being at the heart of a kind of building of, a, of, an, of, of, of the modern nation. And this film is like, well, no, that's what Joy's, Joy's spending most of the movie, like the character of Joy is spending most of the movie doing her best to pursue happiness at all costs. Uh, and the lesson of the movie is actually, you know, that pursuit is in itself the problem, right? Um, uh, which in that seems kind of radical. But then is what this film is therefore saying that kind of, is it also a film that like, would you teach it on a, you know, resilience in the workplace course, right? You know, <laughs> which is also like, you know, oh my God, how dare you? And, and maybe the problem is actually, is it sets up joy and, joy and sadness as the two options, right? Um, and actually trivializes, well, one, there's loads of other emotions that the film doesn't bother to, to or, or finds difficult to get into the story. But also they've got, what is it? Fear, anger and, and, and disgust. disgust who are trivialized as kind of comic sidekicks. And actually, I would argue there's quite a lot about the world to be fearful, angry, and disgusted about, that the film doesn't offer a similar space for those emotions to kind of be given <laughs> the same um, importance in that kind of schema. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's a, a great point, yeah. And I mean, yeah, so, th yeah, the film is basically kind of like a buddy movie between mm -hmm. joy and sadness. So, you know, what is always, or tends to be disappointing about that formulation is that there's an inevitable bond between the two um, that, yeah, it feels inevitable. Like, yeah. you know, th you know th that resolution comes. So, you know, in that sense, um, yeah, what about those other emotions? And I mean, you know, I, was, I was reading some reviews of the, uh, of the uh, uh, film, right? And um, 
Yeah, there's a lot of people, scholars, people study emotions and neuroscientists who are, you know, kind of object to the number of emotions. You know, these are the five core ones that everybody, you know, seems to talk about. But, you know, it's it's not as simple as that. Yeah. Right. right? Yeah. Um, and so there's this whole discourse about, like, you know, what does the simplification of emotional processing, you know, even if the, if the film's about, like, accepting one's emotions. Yeah. What, what are we doing when we sort of present a simple picture of that? Mm. Or, you know, I mean, in the, you know, yeah. I, I'm interested in the notion of simplicity because I wonder, I don't know, I love the movie. Uh, and I, w- I wonder one of the reasons, I don't know, Chris, I'm anticipating why you don't like the movie, but I, I, I've heard you say in the past it's either incoherent or doesn't make sense or you don't get it. And I would argue what I would accept is that the, the, the conceptualization, the metaphor the film's playing with and the way it kind of presents the body as you know, the world in which Riley's kind of um, external behaviour manifests is seems almost deliberately fuzzy to me. Like I, I would struggle now to articulate exactly what the system that the film is offering. Yeah. You've got these kind of, what, five core emotions. They drive the core memory. Memory is really important. I think that is a, an interesting thing to think about. But memory is really important to the kind of personality of, of Riley. There's these core memories. There's these islands of memory yeah. that, that that then there's also trains of thought and you know all this sort of stuff. So like, I, I wonder, sort of, when you say that you know it's simple, I do wonder how much that's the debate. How much that is supposed to be kind of as neat? Is it supposed to be a neatly articulate, coherent metaphor for the human experience? Because if it is, it isn't very good at it. But I'm not convinced. Is it, Chris? What do you? Yeah. What do you, okay. So I. So first of all, I think he's that, picked up his notepad. Everybody, I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> oh God! <laughs> it's, it's just a series of notes about why the Good Dinosaurs are a more effective film. No. Um. For, well, first of all, I think uh, Eric's point about the 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 inevitability of joy and sadness, I think, is really striking. And given the downplaying of the other three emotions, fear, disgust, and anger, it's interesting that you'd argue that given the film was released in 2015, you could fast forward a couple of years and the film should really be about, you know, if we think about Trump era America, it should really be about fear, disgust and anger. So actually the film would look very different in a post-Trump America or a Trump era America, maybe, let's maybe say. Maybe that's Inside Out 2. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, back in anger. Um, I don't know, that was just, just riffing, just sure. riffing. Um, but I have, I mean... I think conceptually the film is super interesting and actually I, I, I know that within the next 45 minutes to an hour I'm going to love it more than I do by virtue of the fact we're talking about it. Um, so I think the tension in the film is between the characters controlling Riley versus the characters being reflective of Riley. So there are instances where Sadness says, I'll drive, and then there's the assumption that, uh, and in fact discussed, so, so yeah, sorry, Sadness says, I'll drive, um, with the assumption that they are controlling using this control panel. But if that's the case, the characters themselves don't need to be emotions. They could be anyone. They could be the, the builders, the, 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 the factory workers that put the uh, control panel together. Because if they're just pressing the buttons, then they don't need to be emotions themselves. And yet another instance is Disgust says to the characters, be happy as if they're now reflect their their behavior is reflective of Riley and the film can't make up its mind whether they are just conduits or, or people playing a video game essentially they are controlling the movements or whether their own actions are the feelings and emotions of Riley and it's the film is a bit fuzzy a little bit fuzzy on that i think so 
Uh, I mean, I, that, that it's a it's a kind of a minor thing, but I did notice it when I was watching. Well, it's not a minor thing; it's the thing that that haunts me. But yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's just an interesting way of thinking about. I guess it's an interesting way of thinking about emotions because if 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 they do control Riley and therefore they don't need to be emotions themselves, it's an interesting decision that the filmmakers took to isolate, I think, or narrow down 27 emotions that they had down to five. Thank you, IMDb trivia for that. Um, <laughs> to narrow it down to those five, which I think goes back to Eric's point about the inevitability of joy and sadness being, of course, they're linked. And the film plays with that, with that memory that joy flicks between the two. Actually, joy and sadness aren't, are interlinked and you need them both, whereas it seems fear, disgust and anger are a little bit more complex and more nuanced and maybe the film will be more successful for me if it focused on those emotions a little bit more. I don't know, it's just, just that's one of the things I, I always remember at the film, are they reflective of Riley through their behaviour and what they do or are they just controlling controlling Riley? That was my kind of thought. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I like what you were saying about the emotion characters not really being emotions they're you know because they also exhibit that. other emotions yeah so and fear is angry and angry gets disgust and disgust mm -hmm. gets sad so it, it seems a bit fuzzy in that sense but maybe it's a cynical mer merchandising strategy to get people to buy fear and, and no i actually <laughs> i actually think it was a, a good choice uh, to to uh, design the characters and characterize them that way yeah because uh, i think it adds a kind of complexity to what emotions are i was always thinking like so the character fear right mm -hmm. it's not just fear He's like anxiety. He's like mm. angst. He's like all these things, right? And it, you know, and it's not just sort of fear in the reactive sense. Like you see something and get scared. No, in it's the preemptive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. anticipates bad things sure. happening. Yeah, you know, yeah. he's preparing for the first day of school, and he, you know, he's got all this stuff. So in that way, you know, he's not just fear. He's like this range of affects. Same thing with like the other characters. Anger. My favorite is disgust because there's nothing really disgusting about her. She actually looks, like, kind of great. Yeah. And, uh, she just, is, just a, it looks a little bit like broccoli. Just a little bit like yeah. broccoli. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I broccoli looks kind of cool. Yeah. I don't really understand. Who doesn't love roasted broccoli? Yeah. Or yeah. Any, any kind yeah. of broccoli. But, uh, yeah, so disgust is not disgusting. And, um, really, she kind of represents taste and judgment. She cares about fashion. She cares about yeah, appearing yeah. before others. These sort of things. So I think, you know, yeah, while it seems like a, an inconsistency or a contradiction, I think what it does do is it helps with the problem of reducing things to five emotions, right? To give it, you know, a sense that, you know, there is some dynamism yeah. uh, um, to, to the sort of range of emotions that one has. I, I mean, that said, they do still feel like they're driven by like a core kind of program, you know, that the, the characters are. Right, they yeah. do. They are distinct. It's not like anger ever acts like fear necessarily. They're distinct enough. Yes, right? yes, and, and distinct through voice work, through um, character design, as you said. So we've got one looking a little bit like a was it a raw nerve? So um, uh, fear is designed. Bill Hader's character is designed like a raw nerve okay. or like a synapse. Um, uh, broccoli, disgust, <laughs> um, anger. I guess like a volcano because he seems to spout fire and. and um, Joy's the one I can't pin down because Joy seems is not reduced to one color. Tinkerbell with a, some blue. Yeah, but hair, yeah, yeah, Mar yeah. Simpson. I think conceptually a star was what, right, right, what, right. You know, because like in the abstract thought segment where she breaks down and becomes more pointed. Yes, yeah. and and that yes, good point because actually sadness then becomes more like a teardrop. Right. I guess. Um, so actually, I think all of this, uh, all of this is particularly important given that the protagonist is also eleven turning into 12 and of course the final bit of the film is a kind of play on what is this button puberty oh I'm sure that's not important and so actually all of this you know this is the story of a girl 11 year old girl who's who is um, moved out of our house um, 
or moved from Minnesota um, to, oh goodness, I've blanked on where she moved San to. Francisco. San Francisco. Um, and so it's all about her alienation, um, her relationship with her parents, her relationship with her, well, I was going to say relationship with her friends, but she kind of has one friend that she talks to online and, and some new friends at the new school. She plays hockey, so her relationship, uh, her ability to, it's interesting that her emotions dictate the way that her skill set that she can't play hockey now, but anyway. Um, so this is just, I, I think the film is a lot more interesting to talk about actually and, and, and kind of dissect. Um, mm. But, but it, isn't yeah. that about the dynamism that Eric's yeah. pointing out? Like, to me, like this is my, uh, a, a, a rant I've gone on a few times on this podcast, but I'll do it one more time. Why not? One, one more for one the road. One for the road, um, yeah. Which is that, like, you know, at, like the, the thorny and complicated relationship between kind of fantasy, metaphor and allegory and like this, this you know, what role does the imagination have if if fantasy storytelling is supposed to trigger, provoke, and stimulate the imagination? Uh, what is the role of allegory in that relationship? Because quite often it's seen as complementary, right? And it's it's well, it, it can be seen as con con conflicting or complementary in that allegory is often used as a strategy to legitimise fantasy fiction. Hey, it's not just. Um, a story about some crazy characters. It's a character. It's about her emotions. It's not Toy Story. Isn't just about some toys. It's about the family, ch uh, children growing up. Whatever the allegory you want to apply in there. Lord of the Rings isn't just about Middle Earth. It's about the atomic bomb or World War Two or whatever you want to throw into it. And on one hand, that is been very successful. But on the other hand, it means that the story story only seems to matter for the figurative displacement that you can offer in as a replacement for the literal mm -hmm. fantasy of it so i've tried to in some of my work i've tried to think through like what is what why is why is the tendency to allegorize so in part of the process and, and can it be part of the pleasure of fantasy and the only way i can sort of think about it is it, on, it only works as part of the pleasure of fantasy if there's a there's a messiness to it or a hesitation to it or a, a, a kind of, you know, I think it's it. Benjamin who sort of talks about allegory as a kind of the, 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 the ruin, the ruin that the literal leaves behind or whatever. It reminds you of the literal, but it doesn't offer an alternative. It's, it's about a displacement or a disjunct rather than offering a solid um, alternative. And I think that's, you know, in a, if, if we're struggling to go, oh, okay, the film is about this bit is this and this bit is this, and we could find a really easy, clear, if it was Animal Farm, Animal Farm is not interested in the imaginative quality of the pigs. It's interested in just distilling um, Eric's. Oh, Eric's uh, not sure about that. But uh, but I would argue Animal Farm is it, not Eric. about. Go, go. Would you disagree or? Uh... Uh, just in the sort of uh, it, what's funny about your formulation yeah. is that you know it was starting to get a little bit more absolute than I think you would like, right? Mm. Like like you know. Sure, you're right, sure. Like you know. Uh, yeah, 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 Animal yeah. Farm. Could Animal Farm be about? Could you read the Animal Farm? There must be a way of reading Animal Farm and reading it as an imaginative story about pigs. Otherwise, what, otherwise, what, what the hell's the? Yeah, like I mean, it's not about pigs. And but it I is think about pigs, this is yeah. your point, right? Like yeah, 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 the idea sure. of allegory being that it kind of narrows or restricts interpretation. Yeah. Um, that you sort of decode it according to some, you know, system yeah. or something. Yeah, like exactly that. that. Right? And, and what role imagination plays on that? Because if the imagination is about liberating and freeing and creativity, it's not much, it's not very creative to kind of have to read something in a in a in alternative way. So I like the messiness of the world right. of Inside Out because it makes me every time I watch it do a bit of allegorization and a little bit of metaphorization and 
try to kind of pick the two worlds together, but there's always a kind of energy and a dynamism left because it doesn't quite match together mm. or it doesn't fill in the holes completely. Yeah. I mean, on, okay, so on the topic of this this messiness, there are, I mean, let's talk a little bit about the structure of inside Riley's mind. So the, the film, if we can, this is the, but the film begins with her as a child or as a baby and it cut, and, and my first note is actually, so Joy walks out of the darkness, I think, when she's a child the uh, character Riley opens her eyes and sees her parents, and we see from inside her her, um, her skull. That's sad. I think we, that's good. It's that. true. Her mind is a container. I feel like that's the basic. Okay, metaphor. so her mind. Is, so I was trying to figure out: is Joy as new to this role? Does Joy come into being at the same point as Riley? Is Joy? This is well. That's interesting, isn't it? Because that would mean that the default position of the human subject is Joy. Joy comes first, but also and then the world gets in the way. Is Joy know. new as new to this as Riley? Does Joy come into being going right? Well, I'm just all I need to do now is wait for the control panel to arrive, and that. So I was sort of interested in Joy being the default, slowly joined by the others and I think I can't remember the order I imagine the order is probably important the order in which they appear there's probably something really interesting does sadness come first yeah yeah it goes joy and sadness yeah. after that I can't remember yeah but yeah which is sort of I think it's the inevitability of them and then ending up together I think and what you're saying about actually a lot of the other well the other emotions seem to embody lots of different things that actually are harder to articulate. And even like the core things of like disgust, that's a very complex emotion, actually, I would say. Like, I think, anger, fine, like, you know, but yeah, fear, the, fine, but actually fear, yeah. So think, there's all that as well. Well, the stuff Eric was saying about the yeah. um, kind of the range of affects. So not only is fear is preemptive, but disgust is invested in kind of taste and judgment, yeah. which I think is right. So, okay. So it's actually, it's, it's as much as, as much socialization as it is emotion. Mm. She's being socialised into the world because she learns about its structures and this then enables her to buy a ticket on a bus. Anyway, so we have joy kind of coming to being as the first emotion, quickly followed by the others. But in terms of the structure, you have these memories that are organised into a kind of vast library. You have the core memories, which are the main the main events, um, the keyframes uh, rather than the in-betweens, let's say, the keyframes. Um, but those core memories power these islands of personality. And there was something that I found... The cynic in me is, well, this is also just a brilliant advert for Disneyland. This is this what the film is. It's about go to Disneyland and enjoy all these range of... Um, and so I was just interested in what people thought about the decision to make it kind of theme park-esque and what that, what that does, given what we've talked about, business, America, happiness, um, happiest place on earth. The joy, most joyful place on earth is Disneyland. And so I just, I'd be interested to, to hear kind of people's thoughts on that because I think the decision to make it a theme park-y is sort of maybe interesting and if be your thoughts on that uh yeah i agree i don't know if it's interesting i'm so cynical <laughs> because, <laughs> no 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 because the, the cynicism i think <coughs> is really obvious like it reminds me of those arguments that you, you find scholars or critics making where like our imagination has been so uh penetrated by like capitalism that you can't imagine anything else right, right? you know what i mean so it's like uh, no wonder Riley's mind is full of this kind of, yeah, theme park-esque looking thing. You know, she has a dream productions is like this. You know, her dreams are this entertainment uh, sure. studio, That's really right? interesting. Yeah, the yeah. The capitalism of her mind. So, yes. yeah. So, I think it's almost, yeah, it's, you know, it's obvious. It's kind of blatant, you know. But, again, I think the other connection is is that there's this emphasis on fun and pleasure in the sort of mindscape, if you will. Um, of course, this contrasts with uh, the dump where the memories go to die. Mm -hmm. and the uh, subconscious, which is dark and dismal. But for the rest of it, it's like this high-tech, entertaining, um, vast space of, like, fun and 
cool looking uh, color uh, landscape. Yeah, the yeah. color scheme. Yeah. Let's talk about the subconscious. I feel like you're love a good representation of the subconscious because it's, if it's all it's a film all about the mind. It's you know people are right about how we've talked about this before how cinema is is like like the mind it operates like the mind edits. We we think in edits. We think in jump cuts. We think in you know this is El Sasa talking about cinema as mind. So subconscious. This is a film all about you know the fantasy in you must have just been. Yeah, all off the scale. I, I'm, I'm thinking. Yeah, I mean, as I say, also as as the film gets on and the buddy movie narrative starts. Oh yeah, yeah. The desire to kind of try to conceptualise it. As I say, it's a thorny thing because, like, yeah, when they're riding the train of thought, all these kind of ideas that sound very metaphorical, but actually don't seem very coherent in terms of. So what they're doing this and she's doing that, and I don't, I don't. As you say, actually, it's that question of driving and and and, and inhabiting because our fear, basically, our fear and sadness absent. From the whole equation, are there are there actions within the body irrelevant to Riley's actions while they're out of the? It would the seem so. Booth? It would seem so. Yeah. Or or are what they're supposed to be doing? You know that when they when they destroy memories, surely memories are destroyed, and when all that kind of stuff. Are there, are the consequence of it all is interesting to think about. But I but I would say actually I think there is something there is something nuanced about it. it's not who's driving and who's not driving because it's the what it's trying to articulate I think is that kind of. Well, there's, 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 there's that lovely gag, isn't there, about, um, oh, God, we've got these opinions and these facts mixed up. <laughs> oh, well, they're, they're sort of the same anyway, and they put yeah, them yeah. back in either box. And I think that's what it's trying to articulate. That there's a difference between feeling angry and consciously acting on one's anger. Yeah. Right, right. And when, when anger is going like, what well, you know what we should do? We should, that's anger in, you know, the, the anger that we suppress on a daily basis when we're trying to be civilised people and things annoy us. Um, but there's okay. I'm going to act on this, and I think that's an interesting, mm. um, or that's the way it kind of tries to get through. Yeah. I don't know. So that's a that's an act of, re- and, and therefore the film is kind of dealing with acts of, of repression quite a lot. In that Joy is trying to repress. Joy actually isn't trying to be joyful. Joy is trying to repress. Just repress sadness. sadness. Yeah, <laughs> and I think this is a good point about agency in the film, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and it's complicated because. Riley's an 11 year old girl and I think at some point we need to talk about like gender sure. at some point we can come back to that yeah. but um, you know she's learning that she can't actually control her emotions right and I think it's amazing that all that her emotions can't control her right it's 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 because they get dis- they get they get shunted or removed or or repressed or so I'm, I, that's where I'm sort of interested is the film about Riley and her inability to control her emotions, or is it about how emotions are just up in the air and the outcome is what happens to Riley? Anyway. I mean, it's probably too easy to say it's both. It's both. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's but too, what I do like about this kind of complication is what it sort of says about depression as maybe like a mood mm. that sort of has a long duration. And so that like, you know, when you're in a particular state of mind or mood, only certain emotions are available to you. You don't know where the other ones went necessarily. All you know mm. is that you're angry, you get, you know, disgusted with things, you're just like sensitive and irritable, right? As opposed to having like a full range of emotions. Yeah. Like only a few things are available to you. Um, and then, you know, and I, I do appreciate the kind of films like presentation of the, the alienated feeling of suddenly mm-hmm. being self-conscious about, you know, your emotions or inability to control those things, right? You have feelings, you start crying, you, you don't want to cry, but you can't help it, right? It's that kind of thing that I think the film does present in an interesting way because on one hand, Riley 
is sort of a, a character, not necessarily the protagonist, but she's mm. also the setting, mm. right? And so, you yeah, know, yeah. so, you know, we're like just able to take this kind of impossible view inside her mind, but she's cut off from all that. Yeah. Right. And it's that, I think it's that alienation of just not really having access to like the details of your own emotions um, that are interesting. And again, this lesson of like just accepting them or something as opposed to repressing them. Yeah, what, what, what's, where's the space for such as sort of consciousness and rationality and, and intellect? And I think they left that out. I'm yeah, sure. yeah, well, that's a big that's a big problem, isn't it? Mm. I'm, I'm just thinking about that. I think that the issue, maybe this is a good point to talk about gender, actually. The, yeah, the, the okay. fact that she's this 11, 11 soon, well, she's 12 by the end of the film, I think, isn't she? The voice of Joy at the end says she's now 12, and, and what, what, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Oh, yeah. Something like that. So, kind of partner with the, the puberty joke as well. Um, Sounds it reminds me of the sort of what's the end line of Toy Story? It's a puppy, you know, like. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> like that. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mrs. Potato Head, Mrs. Potato Head. Yeah, I. Uh, is it is it saying that is it saying that 11-year-old girls are just driven by emotion and that intellect is something that's not at least ava- uh, available or is it's the films just not interested you know it, maybe this is a good point to reflect a little bit on on gender and if it kind of thoughts about choosing an 11-year-old girl quite specifically to articulate some of these ideas yeah i think that's right and you know one thing that I read that's sort of explicit is that Pete Doctor had his own daughter in mind, right? That he's partly inspired by that. And so there is this idea of kind of watching your child sort of lose some of that childhood and that childishness. Mm. And so I think it is interesting, though, to think about, um, you know, there's a history of Pixar sort of having uh, male-directed and male-centered films. And so, you know, having a perspective of, of mm-hmm. maybe a father perspective of of the 11-year-old girl sort of developing. And then, yeah, and I think a lot of people kind of comment on the glimpse inside the parents' minds. And in addition to um, Riley's mother being driven by sadness and her father driven by anger, their emotions are much more uniform in appearance, right? And the, and, and they all, all the, the men have got moustaches. All the, that's, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I think one <laughs> available reading is that, you know, at the moment, um, Riley's emotions are a bit more diverse than that. They don't look quite as uniform. They're not dressed all the same. Um, but three of the uh, so-called, uh, or, you know, anger and fear are coded masculine, right? And so, you know, and that's kind mm-hmm. of a cliche as well. And, um, and then, you know, one of the ways that her kind of emotional development is read is that she's sort of on her way to becoming increasingly normative. Right. That at the end of this, her emotional range is going to look like her mother's or something mm. like that. Right. That she's on her way to that kind of pattern. And, you know, and this might be really disappointing when we think about the formulation of the family. I mean, it's nice to see them sort of caring for each other. But once again, the emotional labor, her dad has just sort of started a new job and, you know, she's asked to be the happy girl. Her mother's very proud of this. They need to, you know, her mother said something about they need to be, you know, sort of strong or supportive for their father, right? So once again, you have this formulation of the emotional labor falling on the mother and the daughter. And this is part of the, you know, Riley's problem, right, is that she can't actually be happy, but she's not given the space to kind of grieve. Mm. Um, and so that's the kind of, you know, dynamic that's set up there. That's interesting. And and yeah. and actually, you know, to, to uh, the, even the kind of, the, the start of the movie <laughs> sets up this, this you know, the, uh, you're talking about a father's vision of a daughter rather than a daughter itself. 
why would an 11-year-old girl have only experienced joy or predominantly joy up until this moment in her life and then the thing that does it is the, the move? Actually, like I know. Actually, I thought about that even when, like, yeah, well, I said it a minute ago. Like when joy she comes into the world, and joy is what arrives. Well, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think any clinical psychologist would, would would necessarily agree with that kind of statement. I think we know exactly about the emotional state of a of a you know a newly arrived child. But you know, there's there's huge trauma and anxiety and 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 concern at all levels of life, right? And actually, what that's subscribing to is a you know very romantic with a capital R view of childhood as this, you know, blissful, inhibited, inhibited experience of, of pure joy and freedom before the, the trappings of the adult world and socialization come in and then things get more complicated and the, and the and they become more uniform. So actually there is this you know, imposed romanticism of, of childhood into adolescence that the film is, is kind of guilty of, of, yeah. of indulging. Because really, actually, I'm sure 11 year olds, you know, it, it's all about question of context, isn't it? you feel great sadness and joy and contempt and anger against whatever you're feeling in life because that's that's the tapestry. Mm. I, um, I'm, I was thinking about Eric's point, uh, the uniformity of the parents' feelings, both in design. There, there's a, a, a It's clear through colour, maybe, which... And, and I, I can't remember exactly the design, but there is a, 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 a distinctiveness, but also the fact that all the males wear the, the moustache and things like this. Um, but they're also, they're more uniform. They're also, they seem to be more in control. We need to fill this now, given the eye contact. So it's all very, more procedural and well-worn. And um, again, going back to your initial points about kind of Wally, actually, it's all, it's a lot more programmed. Riley's gone off the rails, whereas, or has yet to find the rails, whereas the, the parents um, are very in tune with their emotions and emotionally mature and able to, or through the character, the way that the, the emotions are presented in the in the bodies. Contrast that with both Riley, but also talking about normativity, the the young boy who sort of stares at the end at Riley's and it's just like, girl, girl, which is my favorite bit of the movie. Actually, the last 10 minutes of the movie, I think are great, actually. Um, they're no good dinosaur, but they're great. Um, but there's just something around, I don't know, it does some interesting things, and I think the comparison with the young boy who's just driven by desire, yeah. Uh, just yeah, and that can be more permissible, right? Because because you wouldn't say, uh, you know, Riley wouldn't have you, boy, boy, boy. The mother doesn't say if the if the film's about a, a male eleven year old, the, the the mother doesn't say to him, um, "You got to keep smiling for daddy," mm -hmm. and expect, or, and if she does, she doesn't expect him to actually do it, right? But this is this is the the tragedy is that the is that this sweet girl in quotation marks is becoming less sweet. She's being ruled by anger and and these other sort of emotions that she's perfectly entitled to feel. Yeah, I must confess the parents didn't come across this well in in this fury. Second like, time, yeah. Seem to have no like appreciation for like this is quite a traumatic thing for an eleven year old to go through, and maybe like. Um, you know, don't try and make sure that they leave some stuffs there before you arrive and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, that the and yeah, and and yeah, that's the worst parental advice I've heard for you know. I like don't you know, don't just keep smiling, keep happy. Or that's and and you know that burden they place on yeah. her, right? I mean, like so many films that are meant to include uh, younger audiences or whatever, the parents, yeah, are not presented in a good light, right? They make mistakes, they make errors. And, you know, the young person kind of suffers for it. And so, you know, at the end of this one, you know, the parents seem to have learned a lesson. They've, you know, sort of mm -hmm. neglected Riley in this sense. But I think this ranges a broader point of, you know, the acceptability of a range of emotions in children. Sure. 
rather than viewing you know their anger their sadness or whatever as somehow disorderly and, and you know a problem mm. yeah. so yeah, i yeah, i yeah. have a couple of things that i <laughs> i have in my eye notes that i'd be interested one is a kind of very famous scene i think about 40 minutes in where the characters and you gestured towards this earlier on where they kind of fragment which i think is i've certainly used it as saying to you before we started in my animation classes to talk about it's that's animation in a nutshell it's it's non-objective fragmentation, deconstruction. We're two-dimensional, and then they're non non-figurative. Mm -hmm. And it's it's I show that as a in a class on actually animation and queerness, but it's really about they look a bit like stop motion um, figures at one point, then they become experimental figures, but they begin as three-dimensional computer animated film figures. So I thought that's a really nice, that's a nice little way of thinking about animation aesthetics, I guess. Um, and on the topic of aesthetics, um, I was struck this time about how there were shifts in camera work. So when Riley is, is this right? That when she escapes, I mean, there are ways in which her, her sadness or her depression, let's say depression, is signified. It's through colour. Her costume changes from really colourful to, to kind of a grayscale throughout. And she sort of starts to wear really muted colours and then returns to, to, to colour at the end. But there are bits where when she's running for the bus or she's, it kind of shifts to this handheld camera work or this... I don't know, I was really struck by that. It reminded me of the bit in Wally where the uh, shopping trolleys crash together and suddenly like the camera refocuses and you're like, am I watching this through what, another Wally's eyes? Or, But I thought there was a shift in, there was something quite regular and proper and and, and live action-y, let's say, about the setups in, in the world or in Riley's mind. Yeah, no, I, I agree that that's there. And I mean, I always found that because that's cross-cut with like the uh console or the control panel like turning ah yes black, right yes uh, yes and so you know and then she's like on her phone i think her mother's calling her or something like that she's hanging up so yeah there's these shots that are kind of tight on yes Riley. yes and um, and you know what i was thinking about when you were saying that is how that kind of tight you know uh shot and the color scheme change how much that uh, is in contrast to the world inside the mind, which is so capacious and vast. You have these like sublime shots of that whole world. And, you know, by the, towards the end of the film, we get kind of, you know, something that's clearly oppositional to that, right? So to me, I feel like that speaks, you know, to the themes of the film, to the narrative, where things are going, yeah. to sort of have that kind of different focus there. So I don't know. Yeah, I, but but you're, I think it's we've hit on it in that because there's no consciousness and there's no conscience so there's no there's no ethics in this or there's no kind of you know she shouldn't be there's doing no... this or she shouldn't be getting on the bus that's left to the other emotions to, to to kind of express well yeah they do express it they sort of do it indirectly whilst being these emotions but there's no force or visualization of a force of just kind of you know a kind of i don't know a, a, maybe it depends on how you define ethics but a kind of post-kantian cerebral you know ethics of will or, a, or an ethics, <laughs> well, of, I'm, an ethics I'm tapping out <laughs> an ethics of any kind of like intellect is not offered right yeah it's all an emo it's emotional ethics feeling good not necessarily joyful but feeling okay is is the only ethical consideration to to be worried about the, the idea that you can feel bad and do something good isn't really offered as, an, as a solution in this I mean, film what I'm thinking about is just saying this on, on one level and this is prompted by something a uh, quote from Pete Doctor that uh, you know is in one of the sort of paratexts of, of the, the film which is that you know he sort of says he's interested in doing this project because it's a you know th this is uh, such an abstract thing to represent emotions and so I feel like there's like a deliberate interest sure. in th all things like abstract. And so for that reason, you know, um, 
abstract thought and uh, sort of the confusion between like facts and opinions, this is as close as we get to a kind of a faculty of reason. And instead, the emotions are sort of, you know, sort of, they're kind of as close as we get to sort of any kind of reason um, mm. component. It's really just not there. The idea being that, what well, the idea in the film being that uh, these, these, there is no pure reason or there is no pure, um, which I guess is probably true, but you know, or like there's a <laughs> there's an argument to be made for that kind of that is quite a you know modernist um, assumption of of you know that don't worry we'll be able to strip away all these emotions and think clearly in a way maybe is the film offering it's saying well that's not that's you know it's not that's not a possibility I, or is it just not really thinking about that force in the world? I guess you know one of the things I'm resistant to is like to read it as sort of Riley learning to self-regulate and to be an agent. To, yeah. you know, gain some sense of autonomy. Like, that's boring to me. I don't, you know, really want to... Why is that boring? That's interesting. But why is that boring? Why is it... In it's interesting to me that that's boring. Why is that boring? For the for, for something that for the film to be about. Because it just seems obvious, or... Uh... Maybe that's why it's boring. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Like, that, yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah. why it's boring. I yeah. mean, you know, the uh, autonomous subject, the individual, you know, this is so, you know, kind of ideologically obvious for most uh, contexts, mm -hmm. definitely the U.S. context. That I'm like, well, yeah, she's learning to regulate her emotions. She's learning to be a kind of agent with some self-control. So what's more interesting to me is actually before any of that resolution happens. Mm. Like, I'm interested when she's embarrassed. Yeah, and she's, okay. like, feeling really strange. The emotions are out of whack. Everything's off balance. She gets depressed. She, you know, can't self-regulate. And, and she has a different configuration mm. of personality. That's where, like, something interesting and radical is happening. Yeah. Right? And that's where, you know, maybe, maybe she's at her kind of most unusual, um, I don't know if she's necessarily queer in those moments, but definitely not like, you know, normative and she's not being accepted yeah. by her peers around her and she's like kind of navigating this, the world yeah. in, a, in a very different way. She's seeing the world in a, in a, in a different yeah. way. And so to me, you know, that's interesting. And, you know, and I, I always think, I'm like, you know, they, like, what would it have meant if they did have like embarrassment as a character? Since yeah. that's like the end of the first act that like, you know, kind of sets the action up. And, um, and, you know, they don't. Instead, I think what conveys the sense of embarrassment is the inside and outside effect, yeah. right? She can't see into her own mind. She doesn't have that control. She can't, you know, relate to the people around her. So she's totally isolated. She's, mm. like, kind of cut off. She's, like, self-aware yeah. that she doesn't have control of her emotions. And so there's a real, like, you know, I guess in a philosophical register, it's like when you take yourself as an object, when you reflect on yourself, and you, you kind of don't find there's much there. You kind of like, well, I guess I'm, you know, I consist of my family and my friends and, you know, all these things that I don't really control. Mm. Yeah. Right. You know, there's something to that kind of like self-reflection that doesn't find a stable subject, an autonomous subject there. And I guess that reading is supported by the kind of, yeah, the messiness of the world building, the, the fracture, you know, the fact that we can't quite pin together all these disparate zones and lands. And actually the, what a lot of the, human mind seems to re it's just em empty space and vast you know and uh, you know like the, the emptiness of all <laughs> the negative stuff, space yeah you yeah. know is 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 as important to kind of the way the film <laughs> thinks these things through yeah. or, or allows us to offer a way of thinking those things through yeah we didn't get it i mean we haven't talked about space but i think that would be you know kind of the, uh, an interesting topic because it's so important to the sort of metaphor of the mind is this sort of vast space and it reminds me of how often you know computer animated films are reflective of kind of you know, whether it's a database logic or something, you know, massive, the, the technological sublime, right? 
that kind of thing, you know, seems to be in the world that's built there inside the mind, mm. right? Right, mm. yeah, interesting. The, um, just as, as, as you were talking, the, the thinking about when she's embarrassed, is that just before joy and sadness get sucked out of the mind? Because I feel like that's it, they're watching her be embarrassed and, and that's, that's an, that, I think joy and sadness are in the mind. That's yeah. that scene because that almost feels like that's one of those rare instances. No, sorry. No, yeah, no, you're right. I was just agree. Yes, you're right. Because what happens is she recalls a core memory that's joyful, and then because of the new context she's in, it becomes sad, and that's what causes her to cry, and that's what. But then that so that's an interesting instance where it feels like Riley is controlling the actions, and so it's because she becomes embarrassed, and that that changes that sets off a chain of events where joy and sadness get sucked out of the mind. So that's an interesting example where she, Riley's in control, somehow independent of her emotions because her emotions are going, I don't know how, what's well, happening here. Yeah, right, because Joy then, starts the scene in the classroom. Yeah. And, then, and the whole bit is that Joy loses control as there's a scuffle. So some, but joy, joy loses control, but the, that control doesn't go to any of the other emotions right. in there. It somehow goes to Riley who is now independent of all of the people inside her mind. And that's when she's at her most self-conscious. Yeah, so I think you're right. Embarrassment and self-consciousness and, and, and perhaps yeah. in, a different, in a different version of the film, interesting things like kind of sexuality because it's interesting at the, the minute where her, her emotions are in check, she meets a boy at the end. As if, like, when your emotions are in check, here comes sexuality. Yeah, yeah you're ready to couple. Yeah, you're yeah. ready to couple. We're in normative mode now. Let's go. But that I just thought that was a, that's a striking moment where somehow mm. Riley's now operating independent of anyone controlling the, the control panels. Your computer's gone AWOL. It's all over the place. And, and, and suddenly the emotions are now trying to play catch up with her. And that causes them to expend from Joy and Sadness to expend the mind and go kind of elsewhere into the um, long-term memories, the armory of long-term memories. But um, uh, issues of control and agency, yeah, I think, are knotted throughout the film. But equally, it, it's uh, the film... I guess my final question is actually what I was going to ask you based on your first comment was, do you actually think the film is radical then? Because you use the word radical. Um, because it's often cited as Pixar's... We've got this, we've got budding movie, we've got... you know, Where are we up to now? And maybe your point, Alex, is about the kind of golden age of Pixar. So... This is 2015. We've had, so up is 2009. We've had Toy Story 2. We've had Cars, Toy Story, Toy Story 3. We've had Cars 2, 2011. We've had Brave. Um, we've had, well, I can't remember. I think we're now on to, I think the next one is is Inside Out and, and Good Dinosaur. And it feels like Inside Out was held up as a, Pixar doing something really different now. This is really, we're inside the mind. And, but it seems like it's not perhaps as radical as we might, think because it's more interested in the boring bits. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think it, maybe it stands out um, from Pixar's oeuvre in the sense that instead of there, and I know, Christy, I think you've written about this, right, where instead of there being an emphasis on, like, um, the toyness or carness or, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, or yeah. ratness of, of, a, of a character, you know, these are abstract emotions, right? And so there's just, they lack that kind of groundedness. And so that seems to me to stand out a little bit. Um, from some of the other films. But um, again, I just think about, yeah, like the return to stasis or equilibrium at the end. It's not a radically reconfigured world. No. Yeah. Right? I just think about the end of Ratatouille where um, there's just a serious reconfiguration of relationships. <laughs> right? You know, it, it's very, you know it's, it, that's pretty radical. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Right? With this one, you know, not so much. 
No, no. You're right. I realised right. I forgot the one I forgot was Monsters University, perhaps for obvious reasons. But that was so Pixar had made up Toy Story three. This is kind of in. The, I guess what you're saying, Alex, with regards to this. I'd like to sequels. take that back. I've decided I'd like to take that back. No, because, because what I'm doing is is doing the thing I hate, which is like let's periodise it like in a qualitative manner, like or it's a bit messier than that. because there's been some good and some bad across the whole period. Certainly, and, and who certainly, am I to know what's good and bad. Certainly, Dis- mm-hmm. Disney's acquisition of Pixar has has often been considered to reverse the polarities so Pixar are now making more sequels Disney are making more original films and it's the kind of the fallow post but, I, but I would I would challenge a narrative that says sequels are better than are worse than originals I'd rather it just be good like you know well, and, and only you the listener can decide what is good and what is bad so um, I mean I'll just mention Monsters University again <laughs> um, but Except I, I, I think I think the point that 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 Eric's is, is regard to a cycle of films where you have Toy Story 3, so you have a, a sequel, Cars 2, yeah. sequel. You have Brave, um, which was seen as the the sort of Disneyfied princess narrative, Boston University sequel. And then we have Inside Out, and often Pixar's films are talked about as an original story or so and so. And I, I do remember a lot of the stuff around Inside Out and Good Dinosaur being released at, at Inside Out first in June, Good Dinosaur in November, Good Good Dinosaur being the problem one, the more traditional, familiar one, and Inside Out being the slightly more radical one before we went back into uh, two more sequels, Finding Dory and Cars 3. So it's the, it's one of the ones that's often held up as quite kind of different and doing kind of something different, but um, I think it does stand out even though it follows some of the other beats of, of other Pixar films, it's at least trying to do something kind of slightly different. Um, however well, we managed, we managed to get an hour or so out of that, didn't we? Like, we did. You know, it, it's obviously a film that can offer points of conversation and points of reflection, and that's always, that's always you know... I mean, I guess to, you know, to, to students and things, I always like, you know... I, I really like what you said. When I asked you about that, the, the, why is that boring? Because I think that's... I think being, in, be, being interested in the bits you're interested in and not interested in is a really important part of yeah. the process of interpretation that we sometimes neglect when we're kind of, you know, like, you know, just because the film is interested in the ending, if it is, if we can even make such a claim, doesn't mean we have to be, you know. Yeah, like, you know. yeah I, yeah, I, you know, teach my students uh, similarly, like one of the things, and this was in my book, is, you know, to really take aesthetic experience seriously. Yeah. And so when you watch a film and you have your reactions, um, you know, which moments did you actually react to? You know, what, what was, you know, what you liked and disliked. That's actually a decent starting point in reality. Um, and because that's where kind of different breaks happen. So, yeah, the, the resolution of Inside Out, not so much. But when she's <laughs> crying in class and things go haywire, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what's the what's the interpretive process you kind of want to pursue? I think it's also it's not an invalid. Like what's 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 the more what's what's more fun and what's more interesting to examine here rather than what do I what should I examine? I think right. the first question right. is much more. Productive. So in a, in a way, we're all ruled by our emotions. Uh, even as uh, uh, oh, I can't believe I just did that. Uh, right. The uh, end. The end. Right. So so, Eric, thanks so much yes, for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. It was wonderful. No, it was really really fun to chat to you. And um, and yeah, I don't know. I have to do the good dinosaur, won't we? Because then you're all sharp about it. We'll uh, we will be doing the good dinosaur. Um, another time though. Um, your book um is still available if people want to buy it. Remind us of it, what it's called, and and um and they, people can get it on Pixar and Aesthetic Imagination. I. I'm sure you can find yeah. it. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. I've got it. Don't look at me. It. I've got it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. it's good. Yeah, I was rereading it last night and I couldn't get too far because I was. You used the word getting, sharp. Yeah, I was getting intimidated, so I had to put it down. So, um, um, what, and what's what are you kind of working um, on at the moment? What are some of your kind of interests or where you're kind of going post yeah. post Pixar uh, and the aesthetic imagination? Well, yeah, I've been thinking about this. Um, 
because I sort of have to. You know, <laughs> as an academic, you know, we're expected sure. to do this kind of thing. And um, I don't Pre- know. There's an emotion for you. Yeah. Pressure. Pressure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this conversation really has me thinking, and I was thinking about what, uh, what, where we started this conversation, with, uh, which is about allegory. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that might be a kind of interesting to, thing to pursue if um, certain kinds of animated films or animation styles you know, lend themselves to allegory in a particular way. Again, this conversation was interesting because we were talking about like subject formation, how, how a person becomes a person um, when it's their emotions. And this is sort of an allegory about that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's something I'm going to think more about and see if there is, you know, there are other films that do that, maybe in different ways, other animations that kind of do yeah. that. Um, and then the other thing that, you know, I'm going to be working on is, um, you know, I think I'm going to write a little bit about animation and philosophy. And so um, if, uh, if you have, if fellas, if you have ideas about that. Or listeners, if listeners yeah, have. Listeners, yeah. If you have ideas, yeah. uh, that would be great because uh, I'm uh, trying to figure that out. You know, I read philosophy, you know, regularly, and I come across philosophers using animation concepts or concepts that resemble animation. And then there's, uh, you know, animation studies scholars who kind of refer to philosophy. And then I'm sure, I haven't met any yet, but I'm sure I'm going to find them animators who think their practice is a form of philosophy mm. and so that's kind of uh, an investigation that i'm starting at the moment now. great stuff fascinating sign me up i'll read it all it sounds really really great and i'm looking forward to to seeing the work out when it's available <coughs> but 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 don't fall to pressure just uh just continue doing the work i think is probably what we all need to do it right now um all right um that's been us for another yeah. episode um we will see you in a few weeks in the meantime if you want to read more about um, some of the stuff we talked about, you can find it at fancy-animation.org where you can take part in the blog. If you've got something you want to say, click the Contact Us tab and fill out the form. Um, take part in the conversations more informally on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research, and fananimresearch at gmail.com is the way that you can ask us or, or, or commission us to do a quick footnote episode. Yeah. You want to talk about um, animation's ability to represent metaphor, allegory. Uh, oh, there's loads of footnotes in that episode. There's a whole index that we could call from, but yeah, let us know if any particularly uh, stood out. Otherwise, um, that's been us, and we'll see you next time. Bye.